as I listened to Chris read the Sermon on the Mount, I, I feel that there's nothing more to add. He reads it so well and with, brings out the meaning so well. But nevertheless, you'll have to listen to me one more time for, for Matthew chapter 7 as we finish off the Sermon on the Mount this afternoon. A number of people at Cornerstone Church who've had to have chemotherapy in recent years and perhaps there's people here who've had to have that treatment and it's a, it seems to me observing it from the outside to be a very brutal kind of treatment and my understanding is that powerful chemicals are given to the body to in an attempt to kill the, the cancerous cells but in the process many uh, good cells in the body uh, are damaged and it's painful and the stomach lining and the esophagus is affected and the, the hair falls out and it's a, it's a very painful treatment and I feel that the Sermon on the Mount is, is exactly that. It's, it's painful treatment. It's Jesus coming to us diseased with sin and it's, it's not easy to listen to and it hurts and it stings but he is saying these things because he loves us. We've just begun studying the book of Job in one of our young person's Bible studies and I was struck by these words in Job chapter 5. He wounds, this is God, he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. And that's what we see Jesus doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the schoolmaster which drives us to the Saviour. And I had a brief discussion with the dear lady during the break perplexed by these words, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. And again what Jesus is doing there is saying that's God's standard, that's how you were created to live, that's what he wants you to be like, perfect, as perfect as Jesus. And you're not. And when we see that we're not, we see that poverty of spirit, and that, that mourning, that hunger and thirsting and then we come to the Saviour with the blessings of the kingdom of heaven and filling and life that he promises in the Beatitudes. So that's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, to drive us to the Saviour. And what we see here in chapter 7 is what we shouldn't do with the words of the Sermon on the Mount. I've already given the game away and told you how we sh- what we should do with them, but here in chapter 7, Jesus tells us what we shouldn't be doing with the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at each section at a time. The first thing, we have uh, five bewares here, five bewares. And the first is to beware beguiling comparisons. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now Jesus can't mean that we can't ever judge or draw distinctions or make value judgments about anything at any time. He's not saying that. The New Testament says that we should always call evil what it is. If our brother sins against us, we need to go to him. Uh, He's not saying that we should never make any value comparisons whatsoever. But he's saying that we shouldn't judge in a way that makes ourselves look good and the other person bad in a way that puffs up our spiritual pride. That's what he's getting at here. I heard recently, I watched a show on TV that was talking about restaurants and the clever ploys that they use to to get you to spend more of your money. 
And one of them, which I found uh, quite, quite amusing, was that they always tend to always put lobster on the menu. And lobster's always outrageously expensive, you know, $100 or, or thereabouts. And what this person was pointing out is that there's a reason why they do that. They do that to make everything else look cheaper <laughs> and quite reasonable. I mean, if you went to Woolworths and you saw a steak in a pack and it was $40, you wouldn't buy it, would you? But you go to the restaurant, lobster, $100. Steak, $40. Ooh, steak, so cheap. Look at that. <laughs> and so you, you buy the steak. And, and Jesus is saying, beware these beguiling comparisons that you look at the other person and how bad they are and, and you, you, you think you're quite good in comparison. What does he say about that? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank or the beam or the, the log of wood, however you want to translate it, coming out of your own eye? It's ridiculous, isn't it? Let me help you with that. that, that that's when, when all the time there's a log coming out of your own eye. It's, it's a ridiculous picture. How can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. So that's the first beware. Beware as you hear the words of Jesus, beware these beguiling comparisons. Beware comparing yourselves to other people in a way that, that blinds you to your spiritual poverty and the humility that you need and the hungering and thirsting for righteousness that we must have. The second is this. Beware complacency. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. And so here we are in our spiritual poverty and desolation and need. But how easy it is nevertheless to become complacent. And to forget our poverty. And to forget our need or the Saviour. And Jesus is saying here that the, the poor in spirit, that those who hunger and thirst, they'll, they'll be asking and seeking and knocking. We've got some pastors here. And the, in the Greek, the verbs are in the present imperative. And, and I'll tell you that that means, that usually refers to continuous action. It could just as well be translated, perhaps better translated, be asking and it will be given to you. Be seeking Seek and seek and seek and you will find. Be knocking. It's not a once-off action. It's continuous. Knocking and the door will be open to you. That's what the spiritually poor person does. That's what the person who's hungering and thirsting for righteousness does. They're not complacent. There's energy to their faith. There's something they don't have and God's got it. And they, they come and ask and seek and knock and they, they keep doing it and keep knocking until the door's open. You've heard stories about children who um, 
or people who somehow get this extraordinary strength at moments of crisis. You've heard stories of people who have even at times lifted cars off, off loved ones. And I thought, now are these just uh, myths that are floating around? And so I, d- I did a little bit of research and uh, Wikipedia, which is of course, uh, <laughs> it must be true, it's on Wikipedia, but it has a little thing about uh, hysterical strength and I was quite taken with this and, and they say, it says that, that doctors recognise that there's such a thing as um, hysterical strength. So there's not much hard scientific evidence for it but there is definitely anecdotal evidence for it and the theory goes like this, that normally uh, we're probably much stronger than what we think we are but normally the body restricts uh, using our muscles to their full capacity to prevent tearing of muscles and damage to, to joints and there's Probably doctors here will laugh me to scorn, but it, it seemed to, to make some kind of sense. And then there were some apparently true anecdotes of this happening. In 1982, in Lawrenceville, Georgia, Tony Cavallo was repairing a 1964 Chevrolet Impala automobile from underneath. The vehicle was propped up with jacks, but it fell. Cavallo's mother, Mrs Angela Cavallo, lifted the car high enough and long enough for two neighbours to replace the jacks and pulled Tony from beneath the car. And then in 2006, in Ivuzhevik, Canada, Lydia Angiou, 41, fought a polar bear long enough for hunters to arrive and save her 11-year-old son and two other children. That was quite something. A woman, a mum, fighting a polar bear. In 2012, in Glen Allen, Virginia... It's on Wikipedia, by the way, so don't laugh. (laughs) In Glen Allen, Virginia, 22-year-old Lauren Kornacki rescued her father, Alec Kornacki, after the jack used to prop up his BMW slipped, pinning him underneath it. Lauren lifted the car, then performed CPR on her father and saved his life. And there are, there are numerous anecdotes. Have, have you heard those kinds of stories Yeah, of hysterical strength? And, and so the, apparently the, the, there's times where... The, there's such a great urgency and there's such a great panic that... The, the, that, that people are able to do what it's normally impossible for them to be able to do and all the, the muscle fibres kick into action and people are able to lift weights that they'd not, never normally be able to lift. And, and, and what Jesus is saying here, what he's saying here, is if you're poor in spirit and you, you, you're grieving for your sin and you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, then, then you're going to cry out to God. And there's going to be a sense of urgency to that. And, and you're not just going to be asking, but you're going to keep on asking. And you're going to be seeking, and you're going to keep on seeking. And you're going to knock and knock and knock and knock until the doors open. There's, there's urgency and passion here. Jesus' words cannot leave us complacent, or we haven't heard them. If we heard them, it drives us to a spiritual urgency for the righteousness and grace and help that only God can give. And when we ask him, he will answer and he will give us what we need. And Jesus gives us great confidence here from verse 9. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? There might be a father, when his son asks for bread, he might say no, but he's not going to say no, and have this stone instead. 
or if he asks for a fish. I mean, can you picture it? Father, may I have a fish? No, but you can have this snake. No, which father's going to do that? If you then, though you are evil, do you like that little throwaway line there? Though you are evil, let's, let's all accept that that's true. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more? An a fortiori argument. The lesser to the greater. If wicked fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will the heavenly father give good gifts to his children who ask? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The Sermon on the Mount cannot leave us complacent. It drives us to an energetic seeking of God's grace and mercy. Beware complacency. Thirdly, beware the easy path. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And I believe that the path that Jesus lays out for us here in the Sermon on the Mount is, is, a, is a difficult path, and it's a painful path. It's a path of, of emptying. It's a path of breaking down one's pride. It's a, it's a rough road that he asks us to walk on, and it's an exhausting road, and it's tiring. And we are tempted to take the other path, the broad and easy one, where there's much less resistance, where we can feel good about ourselves and uh, not have to face our spiritual desolation. And Jesus said, beware that easy path. The path I'm calling you on is a long and narrow and hard one. You've heard of screw tape. Screw tape, the senior devil who was advising his, the junior devil on how to get his patient into hell. And in his 11th letter, of course from C.S. Lewis's famous book, in his 11th letter, the experienced devil says this to his protege, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Path to hell. It's straight from Matthew chapter 7. It's the broad and easy one. Beware the easy path when you are tired of walking the path that Jesus calls you to walk. Fourthly, beware false guides. Watch out for false prophets. Extraordinary how we ignore that again and again and again and are absolutely astonished when uh, a teacher arises in the church who starts teaching the wrong thing. How can this be? You know, he calls himself a pastor and he says that. He calls himself an elder and he says that. And, and we're, we're bowled over and amazed and astonished that, that anyone could come into a church and say the wrong thing. 
But Jesus says again and again and again, false teachers will come, beware. Open your eyes, they will come. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you looking very mean and nasty and saying horrible things and they've got horns and they wear red spandex tights and they've got a tail and, and, you know. No, they come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. And by their fruit, you would recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognise them. And so there's the, the warning for people to be aware of false prophets, and there's a warning to false prophets. You'll be cut down and, and thrown into the fire. And James, of course, the half-brother of Jesus, gives stern warning to those who profess to teach in the church. It's a great responsibility, and we are warned not to lead people astray. Now, what is the most common message of the wolf in sheep's clothing? Well, as I look to the prophets of the Old Testament, I see that the false prophets had one E-day fix. There's one common idea coming through their teaching again and again. And what is it? Everybody relax. It's all okay. Ah, yes, there's... uh, you, you, you feel a bit bad. Don't feel bad. You're not so bad. Uh, yes, you cheated on your wife, but <laughs> doesn't everybody else? Uh, y- yes, you uh, didn't pay your workers quite what you owed them, but which, which boss has ever done? And, and they're fine. They're, they've got all the food they need. What more could they need? And, and, and the false prophet is always trying to, to calm the horses. Relax. It's all okay. I'm fine, you're fine, we're all fine. And Jeremiah put it like this. They dress the wound of my people. There's a wound there. But how do they dress it? How do they dress it? As though it were not serious. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there's no peace. And perhaps in this third talk in one day on the Sermon on the Mount, you're starting to feel a bit fatigued, perhaps even irritated by the, the guy from Western Australia who's come through Hobart up to La Trobe on this Saturday who keeps talking about sin and desolation and emptiness and, and you're starting, well, when, when's this going to be over? So I, I stop hearing about this. And uh, Chris, please get a much more positive speaker next time. <laughs> Or else we're just not coming. <laughs> but that's the, the temptation for the false prophet. Uh, let, let's, let's just paper over my sin, your sin. Let's paper over what Jesus said. Let's just pick out the good bits and skate over the bad bits and keep the, the horses calm and then we'll have a good crowd next time. But Jesus says, beware, beware the false gods. Fifthly and lastly, 
Beware an empty profession. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and that's very correct, isn't it? It's correct. Jesus is indeed the Lord. And there's a sense of urgency and passion there in the repetition. They don't just call out Lord, but it's Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So here Jesus compels us to think about the last day, judgment day. And there he is. The world is wrapped up. He's seated on his throne. Every person who has ever lived is arrayed before him. And the judgment begins. And some will be put on his left. And they'll go to hell and the fire for all eternity. And some will go to his right. And they'll go to be with his father in blessedness for all eternity. And some will stand before him. Lord, Lord, surely I'm going to your right. Surely I'm going to that good place. I mean, after all, I prophesied in your name. I taught people about you. And I even healed diseases. I had great charismatic gifts of the gifted person. And I, I did all this in your name. And they will hear the most terrifying words a person will ever hear. Away from me. I never knew you. You called me Lord, but I never knew you. You did miracles in my name, but I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. And there is such a thing as a false profession, an empty profession. And again, they, they, these are, aren't these the most terrifying words in the Bible? And again, it drives me back to Christ. It drives me back to the Saviour. Because how easily that could be me. That will be me. That will be me except for the grace of God. I will be the one who will hear those dreadful words away from me. Away from me, Campbell. I don't know you. Yes, you taught at the Latrobe Conference and at other places. I don't know you. That will be me. Except for one thing. The grace and the forgiveness of God. The death of Jesus. Which washes away my hypocrisy and washes away my sinfulness. And so here we have these words of Jesus. Beware the beguiling comparisons. How can we be complacent with the words of Jesus? When you're tempted to hop off that narrow and hard path, to go on the easy path, don't. There's only one path to the blessings Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5. Beware the false guides who preach peace, peace, peace. It's all okay, you're okay, we're all okay. And beware that empty profession. Instead, what do we do with the words of Jesus? Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine does not put them into practice. All these words that Jesus, that we've heard this afternoon, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Jesus says, build your life, build your hope of heaven on nothing less than the rock of his words. As I was driving up with the kids, we, we put uh, Matthew on the, what do you call it these days? They're not CD, they're, I was going to say tape player, no it's not a tape player, CD player, no it's not a CD player. MP3, it wasn't even that. I think it was a live feed from Google or something. So it was, uh, anyway, we're listening to, to Matthew being read out in the King James Version and, it was, you know, and, and the kids were, did people really speak like that 400 years ago? And I listened to the Sermon on the Mount to just uh, refresh my, my memory and I thought I might also hear some interesting new things as listening to that other translation. And we got to the end of chapter 7 and I said, look, keep going, keep going. And so I listened to chapter 8, keep going. And then I listened to chapter 9. And then it struck me. Uh, When Matthew wrote this, there were chapters or verses, were there? In fact, there weren't even spaces between the words. (laughs) They just wrote the letters one after the other, not even spaces between the words. Certainly weren't chapter headings and chapters. And so Matthew 7 flows smoothly into Matthew chapter 8, flows smoothly into Matthew chapter 9. And what do I see there? It's so thrilling. Because what do I see in chapter 8? There's a man with leprosy. He's a leper. He's an outcast, an outcast from God. His physical condition, symbolic of a spiritual condition of sinfulness. Here's a man who's degraded and he comes and he kneels before Jesus. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and and touched the man. He said, I am willing. I am willing. Be clean. And then I keep going and there's a centurion. He's He's a pagan. He's a Roman. He's a Gentile, an outcast from the people of God. Lord, my servant, he's at home suffering. He's paralyzed. I'll go and heal him, Jesus said. There's no hesitation. I'll heal the man. And then I keep going. There's Peter's Peter's mother-in-law. She's prostrate with a fever. She's going to die. And Jesus comes and he he, he takes her by the hand and picks her up and restores her in a moment. And that evening, demon-possessed people come. People under the influence of Satan, chained by the devil, are brought to Jesus and he frees them again and again and again. There's not one person who remains bound by Satan under the hands of Jesus. Demon-possessed man, living amongst the graves, naked. They try to chain him. and Maybe it's that hysterical strength, but he breaks the chains. He's more like an animal than a man. He's full of a legion of demons. And Jesus says to them, go. Like that, they leave the man 
go into the herd of pigs and are destroyed in the sea. And then in chapter 9, a paralytic, a man paralyzed. And I feel paralyzed. Spiritually, I feel like a spiritual paralytic. I can't, can't move myself one foot in the right direction. That's me. Jesus says, get up. Take your mat and walk. Your sins are forgiven. Healed, restored like that. Matthew, the tax collector. Come, follow. I could go on and on. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it leaves me broken and desolate and poor in spirit. And then who do I see in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, all the way to chapter 28, who do I see? The magnificent Son of God. Lord, make me clean. Are you willing to make me clean? I am willing, Jesus says. I want to make you clean. I've got the power to make you clean. There's no hesitation. He comes and he cleans and he restores and he heals and he drives out the devil. Paralytics stand and walk. And that's what he does for the poor in spirit. And the, those who have been humbled and those are hunger and thirst and they're empty. You come, to, you come to Christ, you see. You come to the same man in chapter 8 and 9 and 10 and he heals. And that's not just something you do at the start of your Christian life. <laughs> moment by moment, we come back to the Saviour and he heals us and he restores us again and again. And he'll carry us safely to be with his Father in heaven for all eternity. I thank God for the Sermon on the Mount. I thank God for it. It's real. It's painful, but it's real. He breaks me so that I call out to him and then he heals me. And he heals me for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, here we are this afternoon, uh, broken men, women and children. Nothing in our hands. Nothing to bargain with. Uh, we just come and say, make us clean. Heal us. Restore us. We're enslaved. Break the chains, please, Jesus. We're paralysed. Pick us up. We're dead. Give us life. Carry us safely to heaven. We thank you for your blood. We take hold of you this afternoon. Amen.